we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The second paragraph of the American Declaration of Independence, written by one of the United States Founding Fathers, Thomas Jefferson. Jefferson was entrusted to compose the whole draft, and though the final version was effectively crowdsourced before its ratification in 1776, Jefferson still remains almost solely credited as its author. Influenced by Virgil, Homer, and prominent Enlightenment thinker John Locke, it's not hard to see why the task was given to Jefferson. He was an avid consumer of poetry, so much so he made scrapbooks from poems that were printed in newspapers. He was also an accomplished essayist. In Thoughts on English Prosody, he deliberated on whether the primary characteristic of English poetry was accent or quantity. It's no wonder this celebrated paragraph reverberates so vehemently, not only because of the Enlightenment values it espouses, but because it's punctuated in iambic pentameter. Hello, I'm Paul Ham, and thanks for downloading I Am Ham Presents Dissidents. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. But as George Orwell once allegorically noted in Animal Farm, some are more equal than others. As Homo sapiens have vied for millennia on how to create a utopian existence and further improve the quality of mankind, many have been left behind, often with catastrophic consequences. There has never been a utopia, nor is there ever likely to be one, and we could never agree over what one would look like. But it's never stopped a faction from trying. Whether they be right-wing, left-wing, liberal, conservative, libertarian, classical libertarian, communist, socialist, nationalist, fascist, pacifist, atheist, deist, theist, pantheist, separatist, schismatic, democratic, autocratic, republican, or contrarian. Ideologies have been and gone. Tribes have conquered and been conquered. And though history may favour the victors, as Plato once said, poetry is nearer to vital truth than history. So in this episode, we'll hear from some of the dissenters that were brave enough to put their heads above the parapet and point us towards that vital truth. Starting with a man who Thomas Jefferson venerated and often quoted, John Milton. Milton was an English poet, polemicist and civil servant who wrote extensively during the 17th century. His treatise, pamphlets and masks were steeped in political commentary and often controversial. He was a Christian and humanist. He championed free speech and was ardent in his pursuit of separation of church and state. Where his religious allegiances lay is still open to debate to this day. Though clearly founded on Calvinism and exuding puritanical traits, Milton's relationship with Christ was personal and free from dogma. Rather than force a man's conscience, government should recognise the persuasive force of the gospel, he once wrote in a treatise of civil power. Not only a call for toleration and the protection of the rights of the individual conscience, but also for the freedom to express it. In his major work, the epic poem Paradise Lost, Milton depicts the fall of man, written in blank verse, a form that at the time was usually reserved only for plays. But today, we'll take a look at a chordate sonnet, an extended sonnet that denotes satire, that he published in 1646. During that time, Milton was all but estranged from his wife Mary Powell, 
This was probably due to the fact that her family were royalist, whereas Milton was a parliamentarian, to opposing camps under the Long Parliament. It might also be worth noting that John was 35 and Mary 16. Though later they were to reconcile their marriage, during their separation Milton had continually called for divorce to be made legal. In 1643 he published The Doctrine and Discipline of Divorce and immediately came under fire from friends within the Presbyterian branch of the government. He was labelled a blasphemer and a polygamist. This enraged Milton, who had previously written a series of pamphlets for their cause in the lead-up to the forming of the Long Parliament. Here, in On the New Forces of Conscience Under the Long Parliament, he takes a bold swipe at his former collaborators. Read by Stephen John Shepherd. Because you have thrown off your prelate, Lord, and with stiff vows renounced his liturgy to seize the widowed whore plurality, from them who sin ye envied, not abhorred, dare ye for this adieu the civil sword to force our consciences that Christ set free and ride us with a classic hierarchy, taught ye by mere A.S. and Rutherford, men whose life, learning, faith, and pure intent would have been held in high esteem with Paul must now be named and printed heretics by shallow Edwards and Scotch, what do you call? But we do hope to find out all your tricks, your plots and packing, worse than those of Trent, that so the Parliament may, with their wholesome and preventive shears, clip your phylacteries, though bulk your ears and succour our just fears. And they shall read this clearly in your charge, new presbyter is but old priest writ large. Meet the new boss, same as the old boss, sung Roger Daltrey of the Who in their rock anthem, Won't Get Fooled Again. John Milton was an exponent of the freedom of expression, a liberty not often afforded to some, especially under a totalitarian regime. For Arena Ratushinskaya, freedom of expression was not an option. Ratushinskaya was a Russian-Soviet dissident, poet and writer, born in Odessa, Ukraine in 1954, Arena followed in her mother's footsteps in education. Though poetry and literature were her first love, she chose to study physics at university instead, knowing that to be a writer in the Soviet Union, you had to be officially approved. Nay, censored. Though she became a teacher in 1980, she wrote poetry and circulated it underground, but eventually it found its way under the watchful eye of Big Brother. In 1982, she was arrested by the KGB and later convicted of agitation carried on for the purpose of subverting or weakening the Soviet regime. She was sentenced to seven years in a labour camp. It's difficult to know the real reason she was arrested. It's possible she was on the KGB's radar from a young age, having politely turned down an offer to spy on their behalf during her university years. She also may have drawn attention to herself in 1981 when her and her husband took part in a demonstration against the exile of renowned nuclear physicist and activist for disarmament, Andrei Sakharov. Her poems then were apolitical and focused on Christian theology, liberty and freedom. At the time of her arrest, she was offered a chance at a pardon if she renounced her faith. Suffice to say, what normally would have been an intimidating reprimand in the Soviet Union turned into a heinous violation of human rights. In prison, she was subjected to harsh labour, scarce meals, beatings and minus 40 degree temperatures in her cell during the winter months. 
but despite all this she found a way to write poetry. Irina would carve poems onto bars of soap, commit them to memory, and then wash them away before they could be found. Her husband Igor would send her letters on special rice paper that she could adapt to conceal her poems, enabling them to reach the outside world, which they did, and then some. Her work became so famous that it's not a stretch to say that it saved her life. Her notoriety grew so large in the West that come the eve of the Reykjavik summit between Ronald Reagan and Mikhail Gorbachev in 1986, Gorbachev sensed the release of Ratushinskaya would signal a commitment to change and the perestroika, reconstruction, he had promised. Following her release, Irina spent time in exile within the United States and eventually the UK until 1998 when she returned to Russia, having had her citizenship restored. She died in Moscow from cancer in 2017 at the age of 63. In an interview with BBC Radio 4 in 2016, she said, It is very important not to be driven by fear. If you are praying to do something for your people according to your conscience, there would be quite an amount of people who would stand for you and help you. Our world is not such a horrible place as people think. During her time in the labour camp, despite the immediate danger, she wrote over 250 poems. Today, we'll hear number 20. Read here by Louise Williams. The Palace Square Parade is met by such an unflattering rain. The placards on the walls get runny with something sticky, imbruing the high face of Lenin. The raised flags soar as criminal runnels descend over the slogans, the posters, the paper, like the smoke of the deadly diamond over an executioner's block. The faces, already eyeless as silhouettes, still do to frighten children with that look. The palace parade drags past, sluggish puppets crashing in step on the asphalt streets. The square is obesant, sick, its eyes squeezed tight, no window open to the perimeter of black blood and red mob. Any minute now the mob, at a word, could close in, turn into animals, desert their places. But no. They dare not. A stubborn angel sternly lifts up a cross. The restriction and removal of freedom of speech is normally a telltale sign of the emergence of the cult of personality within a state or country. History has shown us that when democracy fails or is destroyed, an unchallengeable authoritarian or even totalitarian leader will rise, and in some cases, said leader will be worshipped as a prophetic, heroic or messianic-like figure. Freedom of speech goes, and in its place the people are subjected to state-managed mass media, propaganda and stringent control of educational systems. Whether it be the emperors of Rome, imperial Japan, Stalinist Russia or early European monarchs, a tornado of authoritarian and totalitarian regimes have blighted the development of humankind and the right of self-determination. And you don't need to look too far to see present-day governments around the world continuing to do so. The early signs are all the same. 
First comes prevention of freedom of speech. Next, the redaction and destruction of literature. At the risk of sounding like page two of a YouTube comments section, we arrive at the Nazis. Following the fall of the Weimar Republic and Adolf Hitler coming to power in 1933, nationwide book burnings took place with a view to cleansing Germany of Jewish intellectualism and subversive material representing ideologies opposed to Nazism, which was basically everything. The playwright, poet and social commentator Bertolt Brecht decided this was a good time to leave the country. Brecht was vociferously outspoken against the Nazis. He wrote multiple pieces chastising them. His most notable plays, Mother Courage and Her Children, The Resistible Rise of Arturo Ui, The Caucasian Chalk Circle, and Fear and Misery of the Third Reich had already been banned by the time he was exiled. A common misconception when it comes to the interpretation and performance of Brecht's plays is that they are dry, humorless, and devoid of displays of emotion. Brecht created the Verfremdungsdefekt, or distancing effect, a theatrical concept that he described as playing in such a way that the audience was hindered from simply identifying itself with the characters in the play. Acceptance or rejection of their actions and utterances was meant to take place on a conscious plane instead of, as hitherto, in the audience's subconscious. In theatre, he wanted to remove the fourth wall. He would often have characters directly address the audience, break up scenes with songs, and have stage directions read out loud. He was anything but dry, and the same traits were infused in his poetry, as we'll hear now in his sardonic poem, The Burning of the Books, read by Brendan Murphy. When the regime commanded that books with harmful knowledge should be publicly burned, and on all sides oxen were forced to drag cartloads of books to the bonfires. A banished writer, one of the best, scanning the list of the burned, was shocked to find that his books had been passed over. He rushed to his desk on wings of wrath and wrote a letter to those in power. Burn me, he wrote with flying pen. Burn me. Haven't my books always reported the truth? And here you are treating me like a liar. I command you, burn me. After the books are burned, rival political parties are made redundant or removed, and the plebs have fallen into line, international aggression is imminent. The promulgation of the cause begins to take shape, followed by the mobilisation of armies and the molestation of borders. And when the point of no return is reached, duty calls. But how does a government convert their civilians to combatants? Dolce et decorum est pro patria mori. It is sweet and proper to die for one's country, wrote the Roman lyrical poet Horace in Book 3 of his Odes, circa 23 BC, though it's unlikely it was intended as an evocation to enlist soldiers. But again, it didn't stop people trying. Whether instigator or defender, a war of ideas may well be fought with words, but it can only be forced by hand. When push comes to shove, 
bodies are needed before they're discarded. In 1915, during the First World War, the writer, journalist and poet Jesse Pope published a book of war poems imaginatively entitled Jesse Pope's War Poems, though at the time she was considered the foremost woman humorist for her contributions to the Daily Express, Daily Mail and Vanity Fair, her war poems were in stark contrast to those who wrote from the front line. They were light-hearted, patriotic and jingoistic. They exhorted young men to join the army or be labelled as cowards, as demonstrated here in The Call, read by Fleur Keith. Who's for the trench? Are you, my laddie? Who'll follow French? Will you, my laddie? Who's fretting to begin? Who's going out to win? And who wants to save his skin? Do you, my laddie? Who's for the khaki suit? Are you, my laddie? Who longs to charge and shoot? Do you, my laddie? Who's keen on getting fit? Who means to show his grit? And who'd rather wait a bit? Would you, my laddie? Who'll earn the Empire's thanks? Will you, my laddie? Who'll swell the victor's ranks? Will you, my laddie? When that procession comes, banners and rolling drums, who'll stand and bite his thumbs? Will you, my laddie? On the 21st of October 1915, a year after the outbreak of World War I, the 22-year-old Wilfred Owen enlisted in the Artists' Rifles Officers' Training Corps and embarked on a remarkable yet harrowing journey on his way to becoming the seminal war poet he's known for today, though initially he was hesitant to sign up. Owen was born in Oswestry, Shropshire in 1893. By the time he was 11, he'd fallen in love with poetry Upon leaving school, he unsuccessfully attempted to gain admission to the University of London. Though he passed the matriculation exam, he didn't gain the requisite first-class honours needed to obtain a scholarship and funding. Undeterred, he became an assistant to a vicar in Dunstan, Oxfordshire, in exchange for free board and tuition, but quickly became disillusioned with the Church of England for their approach, or lack thereof, towards those in need of aid. Soon after, he left for France to become a teacher, but after two years, Wilfred returned to England and enlisted. During those formative years, he continued to read and write poetry. As an early admirer of Rupert Brooke, Owen may well have expected to experience battle in the romanticised way in which Brooke portrayed it in his poems. Owen regularly wrote letters to his mother. In one of his first letters while stationed abroad, he said, There is a fine, heroic feeling about being in France. But it wasn't long before his outlook changed. Though few of his poems were published during his life, those that were during the war showed a remarkable change in tone and structure when compared to his earlier efforts. As a great admirer of John Keats, his early verse was centred around sonnets, but his style transformed almost overnight upon meeting another prominent war poet, Siegfried Sassoon, in Craig Lockhart War Hospital in 1917. Owen arrived at Craig Lockhart, Edinburgh, 
having initially been diagnosed with concussion due to a continuous bout of severe headaches. Eventually, it was discovered that he was actually suffering from shell shock. Six days prior to his hospitalisation, following a mortar attack, Owen had fallen into a 15-foot deep hole and spent days in and out of consciousness wedged against the body of one of his friends. During his time in hospital as a part of his therapy, Dr. Arthur Brock encouraged Wilfred to use poetry as a means of catharsis. He was suffering from nightmares and had even developed a stammer, but having plucked up the courage to approach Siegfried Sassoon, whom he deeply admired for his realistic and gritty style, the two soon formed a friendship and set about exchanging ideas and suggestions on their respective poems. Owen abandoned traditional sonnets and began writing in irregular structures. He used para-rhyme, slant rhyme and assonance to replicate the soundscape of war. Any semblance of heroic theme and honour were forsaken by way of realistically recounting the vulgarity of war. Owen credited Sassoon as a mentor, to which Siegfried modestly rebuffed, My only claimable influence was that I stimulated him towards writing with compassionate and challenging realism. My encouragement was opportune and can claim to have given him a lively incentive during his rapid advance to self-revelation. Both Sassoon and Owen were publicly outspoken against Britain's continuous involvement in the war, but despite Owen's humanitarian proclivity, he returned to the front line to be with his brothers in the trenches, much to Sassoon's protestation. Siegfried even threatened to stab him in the leg to prevent him from doing so, but it was to no avail, and Owen once again returned to France. On the 4th of November 1918, Wilfred Edward Salter Owen was killed in action, just one week before the First World War ended. Far be it for me to espouse the old cliché of having not died in vain, but his graphic compositions stand for the ages. The brutal reality for those on the front line depicted in his lyrical reportage challenged the idea of honour and nobility in war. What is evoked, however, is courage, regret and immense empathy which emanates here in Dolce et Decorum Est, a poem he ironically dedicated to Jesse Pope. Bent double, like old beggars under sacks, knock-kneed, coughing like hags, we cursed through sludge, till on the haunting flares we turned our backs, and towards our distant rest began to trudge. Men marched asleep. Many had lost their boots but limped on, bloodshot. All went lame, all blind. Drunk with fatigue, deaf even to the hoots of tired, outstripped five-nines that dropped behind. Gas! Gas! Quick, boys! An ecstasy of fumbling, fitting the clumsy helmets just in time, but someone still was yelling out and stumbling, and floundering like a man in fire or lime. Dim, through the misty panes and thick green light as under a green sea I saw him drowning. In all my dreams, before my helpless sight he plunges at me, guttering, choking drowning. If in some smothering dreams you too could pace behind the wagon that we flung him in, 
and watched the white eyes writhing in his face, his hanging face like a devil's, sick of sin. If you could hear at every jolt the blood come gargling from the froth-corrupted lungs, obscene as cancer, bitter as the cud of vile, incurable sores on innocent tongues. My friend, you would not tell with such high zest to children ardent for some desperate glory. The old lie. Dolce et decorum est. Propatria mori. Even if only armed with a pencil, one can still become a hero. One of Owen's heroes was Percy B. Shelley, one of the finest lyrical and philosophical poets of all time. We've already greeted Shelley in this series, and if you'd like to know a little bit more about the mystical side of Percy, feel free to download episode one of this podcast. But today, we'll focus on his polemics. Born into landed aristocracy in Sussex 1792, Over his short life, he dedicated himself to rallying against common consensus. He was expelled from Oxford University for publishing The Necessity of Atheism in 1811, and a year later, he narrowly eluded arrest in Ireland for circulating pamphlets promoting unification. On top of his radical nature, he wrote extensively about the ethical rationale for being a vegetarian, and even refused to take sugar in his tea due to it being cultivated by slavery but perhaps his most notable political essay was A Philosophical View of Reform. In it, Shelley is scathing when it comes to financial organisations. Stock jobbers, usurers, directors, government pensions, country bankers, a set of pelching wretches who think of any commerce with their species as a means, not an end. He never managed to find a publisher for it in his lifetime, and it only came to be published a hundred years after he tragically drowned off the shores of Italy. A strong polemicist, yes, but it's in his poems where Shelley is most devastating. If you were to stand on the corner of Gertrude Kolmerstrasse and in then Ministergarten in Berlin, you'd find yourself staring at a rather anodyne-looking car park. Little may you know, though, that you'd be standing above the ruins of Adolf Hitler's bunker. It's rather befitting that what once was the centre of operations for the 20th century's most infamous genocidal dictator is now nothing but a levelled piece of concrete that people park their cars on. A reminder that no matter how powerful or megalomaniacal a person can be, in the end, it all comes to nothing. As the writer Albert Clayton Golden notes in this piece entitled Ozymandias, Shelley poses that all legacies are fated to decay into oblivion. Ozymandias, read by David Lomax I met a traveller from an antique land who said, Two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read, which yet survive stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal these words appear. My name is Ozymandias.
king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay and that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. Thank you again for downloading this podcast. Uh, as ever, I'm not going to ask for any support via Patreon and places like that. Um, but if you do feel like donating some cash or you think it was cash worthy, then please head to rosemere.org.uk. That's R-O-S-E-M-E-R-E.org.uk. Uh, Rosemere's a cancer charity, uh, very close to my heart, doing really brilliant things. So, yeah, if you want to donate something, go there. Thank you. Got to give special thanks to all the actors that read on this podcast, uh, Stephen John Shepard and David Lomax. Um, also thanks to Fleur Keith, um, who you can check out on Instagram, at Fleur Keith. Um, she's in the latest episode of Black Mirror available on Netflix, so go check that out. Thanks to Louise Williams. Um, her Instagram is at Lulu underscore Will. Um, she also lends her dulcet tones to some stuff on Audible. Her latest recording is The Candle Factory Girl by Tanya Cross. You can also look for Searching for Stephen and Sunday Dinners, other books that she's lent her voice to. Um, thanks to Brendan Murphy. You can find him on Twitter, at NotMurphy. He's also appearing at the King's Head Theatre in a parody comedy of The Crown, and it's called The Crown Jewel, um, by the same guys that make Potted Potter. Really, really funny stuff. Go and check that out. Um, yeah. Oh, and also, if you want to follow me on Twitter, you can. It's at to be someone. That's at T O B E S O M E and the number one, at to be someone. But enough of that. Let's get to the encore. As the leading philosopher of the French Renaissance, Michel de Montaigne, said, He who fears he will suffer already suffers because he fears. It can be a troubling world, and we live in troubling times, t'was ever thus. But each and every one of us has the innate quality of self-determination, no matter the obstacles placed in front of us. It is only the mind-forged manacles, as William Blake called them, that truly keep us in chains. The late Victorian poet, editor and critic William Ernest Henley expounded on this idea. At the age of 12, he was diagnosed with tuberculosis of the bone. He suffered with intense pain throughout his childhood, along with a host of life-threatening problems. In one case, he had to have his leg amputated just below the knee. Interestingly, Henley was the basis for his friend Robert Louis Stevenson's fictional pirate, Long John Silver. Henley was a realist and had an inclination for rejecting decadence. He published multiple collections of uplifting poetry and it's in his collection, In Hospital, written around 1875, 
that we'll find today's encore poem, Invictus. Here, Henley instills in us the notion that no barrier, political or otherwise, is insurmountable. So channel that inner daemon, stay the course, and proceed with a boundless spirit. Thank you for listening. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. <laughs>